0: Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. About two weeks ago, the idea of Russia invading Ukraine seemed hypothetical, but that's not the case any longer. There have now been many casualties on both sides, hundreds of civilians have been impacted, and thousands of families are attempting to flee the country. This conflict is not exactly new, but many in our country and our region do not understand how we got here. So to make sense of this conflict, I've invited two guests on the program to talk about the situation in Russia and Ukraine, how this conflict will affect other countries in the region, and where, or rather how, we see this ending. My first guest on the program today is Brent Hierman. Brent is a professor in the Department of International Studies and Political Science at Virginia Military Institute. His research predominantly focuses on Central Asia, where he studies questions related to political economy, Interethnic ethnic relations, and the politics of land reform. Brent has published some of his research in the Journal of Peasant Studies, Central Asian Studies, Europe-Asia Studies, Nationalities Papers, and Problems of Post-Communism. For the past five years, he has authored Russia and Eurasia, a reference book covering 12 of the independent post-Soviet states that is updated annually. So thanks for coming on the show, Brent.
1: Well, thank you for having me,
0: so I want to start in the beginning for listeners that really don't know how we got here. I mentioned a moment ago that the conflict between Ukraine and Russia really isn't that new. Can you tell us a little bit about the tensions that have been there for a while?
1: Sure. Um, so to a certain degree, right, we can, we can start even looking at uh, independence in 1991. Ukraine itself has a kind of historic cleavage. Uh, there's a West and an East Ukraine, and I don't want to make too much of a of a big deal about this because I don't want to feed into irredentist claims that Russia is making on, on Eastern Ukraine, but there is a difference between Western Eastern Ukraine. Some of that is historical, some of that is linguistic, uh, cultural, political, economical. There is a, uh, a history there where in Eastern Ukraine, there, there has been a population that has often looked more towards the East, looking more towards Russia, whereas in the West, there was, a population, or there was a population that has historically looked more Western, uh, wanting to s- see their future tied in with Europe as opposed to uh, with, with Russia. And the, the Russian engagement with Ukraine uh, is an ancient one. It goes back um, to the founding of, of the Russian state, the Russian polity, and the Russian empire. And, and there's a sense amongst the nationalists in, in Russia that Ukraine or the territory of Ukraine is, is an inherent part of, of the, the Russian. Uh, empire of the Russian people, uh, going so far um, as as to, to be heard in things like Putin's most recent statements where he's talking about Ukraine doesn't exist, Ukrainian state is a fiction, Ukrainian people are not a real people, um, which is, of course, nonsense. But he's not just saying this for himself. There is a, a group of nationalists in Russia who have long held that view. This has manifested itself in, in geopolitics many, many times, Because of the divide in Ukraine, uh, Eastern, Western, there has been competing political groups uh, and and that can explain some of the democratization that Ukraine has has been able to achieve relative uh, to places like Russia where you haven't seen that level of competition or democratization. In uh, 2004, there was a candidate preferred by Putin, Yanukovych, who won an election against uh, a candidate that largely had support from the Western part of Ukraine, Yushchenko. Now that election was corrupt. It was not not free and fair uh, and people took to the streets. And and eventually there had to be uh, elections again and Yushchenko and won the, the candidate that uh, Putin did not prefer. Before that election in 2004, Yushchenko was poisoned, and it's widely believed that he was poisoned in, in part by, or at least with the connections to, the Russian regime. Um, so uh, there, was, there was this effort even there to, to deeply influence Ukrainian politics. In 2014, um, well, actually in 2013, excuse me, there was a, a similar geopolitical situation where Ukraine... Um, was uh, about to sign an agreement uh, with the EU for increased relations, and, uh, a bettering, bettering the relations with the West um, under pressure um, from Putin. The president, who was actually at that point Yanukovych, the, the guy from uh, 2004, uh, uh, he won a free and fair election in 2010. Uh, but in, in 2013, uh, Yanukovych was pressured by Putin to renege on that agreement with the EU and instead uh, enter an agreement with uh, with Russia this led to protests in the streets of Kiev again the Euromaidan protests these were called Yanukovych uh, ended up having to lose office uh, and then fled into Russia where he's currently in exile it was after this that uh, we saw the annexation of Crimea uh, the illegal annexation of Crimea and um, in and, and then eventually the, the movement of troops into the Donbass region uh, and the first war with Ukraine over uh, uh, those two uh, provinces there, Donetsk and Lugansk.
0: Now, a lot of people have been saying that what one of the things that's causing this is NATO. Do you agree with that assessment? No.
1: Uh, so that's that's... Probably most famously associated with John Mearsheimer, uh, he wrote an article uh, in the wake of 2014 making the case that the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine and ex Crimea, invaded Donetsk and, and Lugansk is because of uh, the West, because of NATO expansion. Uh, it, first of all, that argument takes away complete agency over, over the Ukrainians or any of the actors in the Baltics, uh, in Poland, who had wanted NATO to expand right uh, it's not that NATO did this and forced Poland and forced Lithuania and forced Estonia Latvia to join uh, no they, these states uh, petitioned to join because they wanted to be tied into this security umbrella um, uh, secondly there's there's the argument that NATO caused this would have would have suggested uh, that we would have seen an invasion in the immediate aftermath of NATO expansion right, or in the run-up too, but we didn't, right? So I mentioned 2004 and the poisoning of Yushchenko that, that Putin is connected to um, or that people believe, widely believe Putin is connected to. That was four years before George W. Bush mentioned that Ukraine could be on a path to membership uh, to NATO. So so the, the timelines don't make sense. Does it fit into a broader narrative? Yes, right? Um, there, there is a sense uh, within the nationalist core around the regime that the West is out to get Russia. Uh, protests in uh, 2011 in Moscow uh, were blamed by Putin on Hillary Clinton, for instance, right? Which is just nonsense. But, but, but still, there is that sense that the West is out to get them. Uh, I, I often believed, actually, before now, that this was. Uh, playing to a domestic audience and not something he really believed. Increasingly, I am I have to, you know, eat a lot of the words I, I I said to my students over the years saying, you know, like, he's just playing these cards. I think he increasingly, I think he believes these things. Um, so it fits into that narrative, but it's not it's not a causal story uh, at all.
0: So how do you think that the conflict here is going to affect countries that surround Russia?
1: Uh, a great deal. Um with the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, all of the post-Soviet states, um, with the exception of the Baltics, uh, continued to have really tight relations with Russia. Russia remained um, a dominant player, if not the dominant player for, for most of these, these other states. Um, in the region I study uh, most closely, Central Asia, uh, it's, it's very much the case that uh, Russia is, is the soft power uh, dominant force, um, it, it is the security guarantor, or it's always been seen as a security guarantor. Uh, whereas China has 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 kind of taken its place as, as an economic engine and a trade engine, uh, Russia still is the place where people, when they think about uh, the regional power nearby, they think about Russia. They have they tend to have positive views towards Russia. Um, and that's not, and I'm not, by saying China's important economically is not to uh, denigrate Russia's importance uh, economically. Um, Two of the states in Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are are two of the most remittance-dependent countries in the world. Uh, Their their economies rely on on their labor migrants uh, and they're predominantly working in Russia. The money they're sending home has lost a huge chunk of its value in the past two weeks. Uh, This is going to cause a massive household stress uh, in in, in both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Uh, beyond the effect on the, of the broader economy in terms of um, the ability to trade with one of their biggest partners, uh, which has been you know, severely undercut. And what's really remarkable is the states of the region are trying to figure out how to balance this right now. So uh, Kazakhstan uh, is, is for me, one of the more interesting cases and Kazakhstan had, had riots or protests and called riots uh, this past January. And um, for a variety of reasons, they decided to call upon Russia uh, and the Collective Security Treaty uh, Organization, CSTO, um, to send troops in to help put down these riots. So Russia sent troops into the big cities of of Kazakhstan, Almonte and Astana, to help put down the riots. And then, uh, then they went home one would look at this and, and perhaps anticipate that Kazakhstan would be pressured to then support the war effort, support Russia. Uh, interestingly enough, they continue to vote, um, uh, abstain from votes in the international arena. Uh, they're officially taking a neutral stance. And I think this largely signals the fact that there is concern that if they do support the war effort, uh, the protests that rock the cities in in uh, January would return again, uh, and so so they're trying to walk this fine line with the recognition that you know their own currency, the tenge, is, is deeply tied to to the Russian ruble and declining in value, um, and and so watching these states trying to balance these things is is, is they're they're walking a tightrope, and and it's unclear which way they're going to go as they try to balance this neutrality, um, but economically. Unfortunately, the region, I think, is in in for um, a period of uh, belt tightening. Um, Similarly, uh, Russia, Ukraine are massive grain producers, uh, responsible for about 25% of all grain uh, exported uh, globally in the past couple of years. Uh, We've seen shocks, what shocks to grain prices can do to autocratic regimes uh, in the past. In 2010, uh, there were uh, droughts and wildfires in Russia that led to a spiking of, of uh, grain prices, uh, wheat prices, um, uh, which were associated then with disgruntlement and grievances leading to the Arab Spring in the Middle East. Uh, there is uh, the possibility that similar um, Similar dynamics could occur again as grain prices, as wheat prices increase, you're going to have issues of food security, you're going to have uh, grievances and then uh, potential uh, protests uh, leading to instability. Um, and in the Middle East, Central Asia, the Caucasus and, and probably beyond.
0: Yeah, I think it's important that we think about how sanctions will not only affect Russia, but the surrounding region. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, you know, my, my, my heart goes out to, to those affected by this.
0: My second guest on the program today is Joseph Wright. Joe is a political scientist at Pennsylvania State University who studies comparative political economy with a particular interest in understanding how international factors influence domestic politics in autocratic regimes. His most recent co-authored book, Migration and Democracy, How Remittances Undermine Dictatorship, demonstrates how remittances sent to the global South increase the likelihood of protest and reduce electoral support for authoritarian incumbents. His current co-authored book project, The Origins of Democratic Collapse in the 21st Century, which is very relevant for our discussion here today, examines how personalist political parties contribute to democratic backsliding and collapse. So thanks for being on the show today, Joe. It's Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've been reading a bit about your research and your work, and in much of it, you discuss what are called personalist political parties. So for those who do not understand that, never heard that, or perhaps do not study international relations and comparative politics, what are personalist political parties?
2: So these are parties where the leader of the party, the elected leader, uh, has substantial power relative to other elites in the, in the party. So what does that mean? That means that that leader can act in ways once they are the leader in uh, in unconstrained ways uh, where other elites within the party can't sort of block that uh, the leader's uh, policy or personnel decisions. Concretely, we find that these are parties where the leaders are more likely to finance the political party, use sort of their own wealth uh, to finance the political party. They're also parties where the leader uh, he or she has more power to nominate candidates for the national legislature. Um, you know, we think about, for example, in the United States, there are contests that are happening probably as we speak, or are unfolding, right? Primary contests in the Republican Party uh, and the Democratic Party, and the question is, do the party elites decide who will be the winners of those primaries, or does the uh, sensible party leader, uh, former President Trump, does he get to decide? Uh, who those leaders are? Let's think back to the, to the converse situation in the midterms in what are we talking here? 2018, right? Where President, former President Obama was, you might think of as the sort of the, a party leader at that point. Did he decide who was going to win those primary contests in the uh, in the Democratic primaries in 2018? Was it the voters? Was it other party elites? Well, when the leader or the ex leader has that substantial power to intervene in the nomination process and sort of select which candidates uh, stand for election, that means that the leader has more power than the elites or the, the base, the voters. We, we find that these are parties where the leader has more uh, is more likely to finance the party him, him or herself. The leader has more nomination control. And the third thing that we find is that these are parties where uh, local organizations or local party branches are quite weak, which gives more power to the center of the party than to the sort of the periphery or the the, the local parts of the party.
0: So in the United States, we usually hear that the local parties are weak comparatively. Like if we look back in time, they're, they're fairly weak compared to the national party. Uh, but would you say that what we have in the United States, are do we have personalist parties?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and, and in large part, no, um, at least not the way we're treating or defining a personalist party. And I think it's helpful actually to look at what happened in uh, late 2020 and early 2021 with the Republican Party. So, at least by the way that we measure this party, uh, the Republican Party, uh, at least its current manifestation, is 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 sort of one of the most highly personalistic periods of of uh, either party in the last thirty years. Um, But even so, uh, when we put that in comparison to uh, uh, parties in other democracies throughout the world, it's actually only at sort of the middle level of party personalism. And I think to help explain that, uh, it's important to think through what happened when President Trump uh, tried to overturn the election. There were certainly lots of people in the opposition, in the media, in civil society groups that complained and, 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 and said this was terrible for, for, for President Trump trying to overturn the, the election results. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were relatively powerless. Who were the key actors that stopped ex-President Trump from actually overturning the election? Well, they were local party elites in places like Georgia, in Michigan. One might even include Mitch McConnell. At one point, President Trump, now this is before the election, said, let's move the election date. He floated that idea. And who was the first person to come out and say, not happening? It was Mitch McConnell, right? So these are elites, both maybe at the national level, Mitch McConnell, but also at the local level, who stood up to President Trump. Now, why would they stand up to President Trump? Part of it is because they have a normative belief in democracy perhaps, in part because they play democracy. But secondly, they also probably have a political career path that's independent of Trump. And that's really important, right? Mitch McConnell got reelected recently, not gonna be up for election for a number of years now. What, he's got another four years before uh, uh, reelection, I think. and so he's, his, his, his political career, at least his electoral career, is not necessarily tied to, to President Trump. And we'll see about the, the gentleman in, uh, in, in, in Georgia. I, I believe he's in a primary campaign, right? And if he wins that primary campaign, um, then that would be sort of concrete proof that, in fact, he has a political career independent of pre- ex-President Trump. Yeah. Okay. And that, that to me is a key sort of uh, dynamic of what defines a personalist party and what doesn't. Do other elites, even at the local level, have a political path, have a political career independent of the leader of the party, or are they closely tied to that party? When they're closely tied to, sorry, closely tied to that leader, when their careers are closely tied to the leader, that means you're going to be extremely loyal and basically rubber stamp anything that that leader does.
0: Now, I know that in your work, you also look at the way that these personalist parties affect democracy. Could you give us a little description about how those two things are linked together? Like, how do they affect democracy?
2: Yeah. So what we find is that when these parties uh, become the leader, these leaders are backed by these kinds of parties, uh, they're more likely to undermine democracy. And one of the primary ways that they do that is actually by attacking state institutions. So undermining horizontal uh, so, uh, horizontal checks on their power, which you know, in a U.S. political context, for example, we primarily think of as legislative constraints and uh, judicial constraints. But I would put a third one in there, and that is bureaucratic constraints. So, state bureaucrats, the judiciary, as well as the legislature, uh, uh, typically are the ways that we think about and conceptualize horizontal constraint, uh, at least institutional constraints. Um, and so these leaders, by and large, go about attacking those things. And so we find substantial evidence, particularly when it comes to um, ju- uh, constraints from the judiciary and constraints from the bureaucracy, that these uh, leaders, by changing who uh, is in positions of power in the bureaucracy and in the judiciary, that uh, they're basically selecting loyalists, ind- individuals who are, whose careers are completely dependent upon the leader, uh, him or herself legislative constraints are a little bit different because where we see this happening most often actually is where the leader gets elected with a super majority, you know, and so we saw just very brief period of time, uh, I guess, when Trump was president for those first two years, when he effectively had a legislative majority, right? And who stopped his legislative behavior? It was actually elites within his own party. Think about John McCain's vote on healthcare. Right. Um, right. So so, but in, in most of the places where these uh, sort of highly personalistic uh, leaders are, are being elected, they don't face uh, cons- uh, constraints from an opposition party, the way that President Trump did uh, the final two years of his presidency and the way that uh, Joe Biden is likely to in the, in the, in the, in the final two years of his, his presidency uh, or the, of this term, at least. Um, and, uh, but so, so legislative, yes, there's few legislative constraints, but part of that is actually endogenous to the fact that they have super oftentimes have super majorities in the legislature. Um, And and those those uh, parties in the legislature are compliant with uh, and rubber stamp the the moves of the of the leader.
0: Now, let's tie this then back to the discussion on Russia and Ukraine. Um, So in these two countries, Ukraine, technically, we would say there were there were high levels of personalism there and and also in Russia. So what sets these two countries apart and, and how are they different when we look at it through this lens?
2: Yeah, so certainly in Ukraine, you've got a series of sort of wealthy oligarchs funding uh, political parties. And certainly that has not created a stable uh, democratic institutions, it hasn't created parties that are able to constrain leaders uh, in the way that we see, for example, the Republican Party constraining Trump in the US. Uh, so so that, that certainly has been true in sort of all of Ukraine's history, post 1990 history. What that means is that they, uh, that, that leaders have tremendous amount of, of, of power uh, and uh, sort of part and parcel of, of this phenomena is actually more corruption. And certainly that would be the case in, in Ukraine. Uh, uh, not, you know, in the last 30 years, Ukraine has been a highly corrupt leader. And part of that is because the parties are highly personalistic. When you have unconstrained leaders, that means that the sort of who the leader is can matter more. Um, and this is where, you know, people are praising Zelensky these days, uh, and, and certainly he's a good actor, and that, that I think helps play to his, his international persona uh, uh, these days, and he's obviously making some pretty incredible and brave choices, or at least what appears to be uh, at, at this point. Um, but, that, but the lack of how, sort of a, a strong party is what uh, enables sort of leaders to become more important, and that's certainly the case in Russia, right? Russia uh, had some democratic elections, some fair and free elections, Um, Putin was effectively selected by elites, Uh, it wasn't exactly fair and free elections, Uh, but importantly over time, particularly in that first decade in power uh, in the 2000s, as oil prices were increasing, Putin was able to consolidate substantial power over the party that backed him, as well as transform the security apparatus. And during this period of time, at least uh, in our work, uh, we, would, we would treat Putin as a, as a, as a dictator. Uh, so it's a slightly different phenomena than these uh, personalistic parties that are arising in, in, in democracies. But a lot of our insights are actually quite similar insofar as in Russia today, because it's a highly personalist regime, um, domestic elites with would, would be institutional power actually can't constrain him very much. Right, we we've, we've seen the legislature basically do nothing to try to constrain uh, uh, Putin in his aggressive international behavior, and similarly, it would appear that he's got sufficient yes men atop the security apparatus in the military, but they're actually egging him on, um, and so there don't appear to be substantial uh, elite uh, domestic constraints on his his behavior. Um, And it's taken advantage of of rising oil prices in 2021 to to become substantially more aggressive by by invading Ukraine.
0: Now, in the monkey cage piece that you just published last week uh, with Erica France titled It's Not Just a Putin Problem, Personalists Like Him Are Behind Much of the World's Bad Behavior, you mentioned personalist rule. Is that different than the personalist parties then? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's a great question. These are actually becoming increasingly uh, connected because when these personalist parties are selected as the winning uh, party in a democracy, they are the most likely to undermine and ultimately uh, lead to democratic collapse. So this is what we saw in places like uh, Venezuela. Hugo Chavez uh, created his own party, effectively created his own party in the run up to his when he was first elected president uh, in the late 1990s. took advantage of rising oil prices at the t- in the early 2000s uh, and was able to consolidate control, uh, attack domestic institutions. He reshaped the courts, for example. By 2005, in our way of sort of uh, parsing the world uh, into, into different bins, we code uh, Chavez as a, as a dictatorship or treat him as a dictatorship, right? And so we see um, uh, increasing repression at home um, and you know, further consolidation of, of uh, sort of dictatorial powers. And so that was a, that's one clear pathway from a democratically elected leader, right? There's a fair and free election in 1998 when he was first elected, but a leader who was relatively unconstrained by the elites in his own party, is able to consolidate domestic political power, and then effectively turns into a dictatorship. And that's very similar to the path that, that, uh, that Putin walked as well towards his power. And so as these democratically elected personalist parties uh, have more time in leadership, they're the most likely to undermine democracy, ultimately lead to dictatorship, and that can lead to, to, to bad consequences. And so, you know, we're seeing this happen in places like uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Benin, a lot of small countries that we don't talk a lot about, Senegal, um, but it's nonetheless happening. We've seen it happen in Georgia, in, in Serbia as well, in, in that sphere of the world.
0: So what do you think is going to happen at sort of like how this all shakes out? Where, where do you see this going?
2: mean, with the Ukraine, Russia, with Ukraine and Anything? Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I tend to be the pessimist in the room with these kinds of things. Uh, so take what I have to say with a grain of salt here. <laughs> um, I don't think it ends well, uh, when personalist dictatorships are backed into a corner, uh, they double down and that means using more repression and more violence. Um, and so, where we haven't necessarily seen this happen is with the nuclear power. And that's what obviously is incredibly scary. Um, but if we take the look at historical trends from other personalist dictatorships, these are the dictatorships that are most likely to have a violent collapse rather than a peaceful transition to democracy. And as a result of that, it's very, it's less likely that there'll be a new democracy even if the personalist leader is deposed. And so a great example of this uh, in the past decade was in, was in Libya. Um, where effectively we've had state failure, lots of violence, uh, you can call it lots of different things, civil war, rebellion, uh, state failure, but no stable government, much less democracy in Libya uh, since the fall of Gaddafi. And certainly he was a, a leader that was backed into a corner, uh, brought down violently, um, and and left sort of chaos in, in, in his wake. Now, it might be different in Russia, you've got certainly a much stronger state in Russia than you did ever in uh in, um, uh, in Libya, and that state will persist no matter who the leader is. Uh, but I don't like how these things uh, end when in their personalist dictatorships back into a corner.
0: Well, thank you again for being on the show. And even though pleasure. the ending comment is pretty somber and pessimistic, but it's good to hear from individuals who study these dictatorships and these parties. So thank you for being on the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's
0: a pleasure. Thanks again to all of you for listening. And if you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can catch up again by podcast wherever you get your podcasts, be that Spotify or iTunes. Have a great week.